Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my. It's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others. Here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker, and unfortunately, PK is still not well. She is resting at home and sends her love to everybody, but she hopefully will be back next week to fill us in on the new month, the new numbers, and what to expect this time around. So, anyways, at least we're past Mercury retrograde. Thank God. And we've got a great show. I have a great show for you tonight, all about the Mojave incident. This is going to send chills right up your spine because we have all the details. This is a very deep story. It's a very frightening abduction experience. And we've got author and expert Ron Felber here with us tonight. I'm going to bring him on in just a few minutes. But first, uh, some really good news I have to share with you all. Do you remember Covert Disclosure? We had contacted Covert Disclosure. This is a gentleman that works at a top-secret facility, very familiar with cryptids and, and all of these strange events that we talk about on the show all the time. He agreed to answer our questions. He is using something to change his voice. And he also is giving us the text so you can understand it both ways, whether you're just listening to it or I will read the text to you over the air so you can hear it. But he has answered every single one of our questions about people that have gone missing, UFO incidents, why there are weather events when people go missing. He has answers to all of this. And I'm so excited that he was able to get us this information. He does this at high risk to himself, obviously, caution so that he can't be traced. I will let you know when we're going to air that show. It will be soon. I'll be sure to announce it. You will all be able to hear what he has to say. So that's going to be a great show. And I also received a message from someone who witnessed UFOs in Australia, and she's kind enough to allow me to read this on the air, and her name is Melissa Lowe, and she said, I just wanted to tell you what I saw on the 24th of June on the eastern coast of Australia, the northern beaches of Sydney. This is what I posted to Facebook about it. A couple of friends and I saw the most incredible thing last night. We were walking along Newport Beach at 5.45 p.m. and stopped to admire the moon, which was at about a 45-degree angle from the horizon. I then noticed what I thought was a satellite moving to the sky. But as I kept watching, I realized that there were about 
30 of them moving from where the moon was to above and beyond our heads. I told the others, and they could see what I meant. One of them mentioned the Starlink satellites, but noted that they move in a straight line. Starlink also appears very bright and all the same level of brightness. What we saw was something else. The stars over the beaches are scattered through the sky with some dark patches. What we saw was as if there were heaps of stars above us at varying degrees of brightness, even a really bright one, that were moving at the speed of satellites all in the same direction. It lasted for about five minutes. We could compare them with the real stars that were staying still, and I even pointed out one that was moving in a different direction. Incredible. When they left, the patch of sky they occupied went back to being dark again with not many stars in it. Is it something to do with Starlink that we don't know about yet? Or was it a fleet of UFOs? I've seen footage of fleets like this before. When I Googled Starlink, what we saw looked nothing like that. It was as if we were watching a time lapse of the stars above us. The thing about it is that most people wouldn't have noticed it unless they stopped to admire the stars and kept watching them till you could see they were moving. So if you live in Australia and you happen to see this in the sky, you may want to reach out to us here at Supernatural Girls, and you may want to reach out to Melissa Lowe, and she spells her last name L-O-W-E in Australia. I'm guessing there are more witnesses to this. And, Melissa, thank you so much for sharing this information with Supernatural Girls Show. I so appreciate it. And anybody who has stories like this and events that happen that have no explanation, please feel free to send them over to us. You can do that, message us on Facebook, or you can email me directly. And all of that is on the website. So, we love to hear stories like this and love to keep in touch with our listeners across the globe to see what's going on in, in your part of the world. So please go ahead and contact us about anything and everything that has to do with the paranormal. So tonight, I cannot wait to hear the details of this story, the Mojave incident. Now, Ron Felder is the author of the Jack Madsen crime thriller trilogy, which includes Dark Angel, The Kafka Society, and A Man of Indeterminate Value. Like his thriller protagonist, Jack Madsen, Felber has worked as a deputy sheriff transporting federal criminals and has fought Golden Gloves. The recipient of the UPI Award for Fiction, he began writing his career with articles based on his experience for True Detective Magazine. Felber was educated at Georgetown University, Loyola University of Chicago, and Drew University, where he earned his doctorate. He currently teaches creative writing at Drew University's Casperson School of Graduate Studies. We are so, I am so lucky to have Ron here with us tonight. So, Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Patricia. Pleasure to be here. So glad you're here. I wish PK was here because she loves these kinds of stories. But this is a big one. But first, let's hear a little more about you. I want to know why you were drawn to this particular case. Well, you know, it, it's not something that I was writing about. As a matter of fact, what happened, 
I was uh, running a company, and um, I had salespeople that were, you know, all, really all over the country. And a friend of mine was one of the salespeople in California. And he had a friend that he played football with, college football with, that uh, was his best friend. And he knew I was a writer. And so his idea was to put us together so I could hear this story. And he thought I would be interested in it. And uh, at first I said, you know, I'm really not interested. It's not just not the kind of thing I do. I was writing thrillers at the time. I was writing spy novels, et cetera. So it just didn't really fit into my, you know, what I, what I, I do. But uh, he convinced me. And on the other side, uh, Tom and Elise Gifford, the two people that had this experience, uh, didn't want to talk about it at all. And they swore him to secrecy. So he was sort of stuck oh. in the middle trying to arrange this. And, and we did. And I, I met them. They were, uh, you know, Tom is a, uh, a project manager uh, that builds, constructs uh, shopping malls. Uh, they, Elise is uh, the mother of uh, three. Uh, they're both college graduates. Uh, uh, Tom was an athlete, a, a college football player. And really these are, you know, about as credible as you can find in terms of uh, backgrounds and uh, and uh, personalities. So they're credible witnesses. They're educated. And so mm-hmm. what a fascinating, fascinating thing to look into. So I'm so glad that you changed your mind to bring us this uh, great I mean, event. <laughs> I was stunned. And the name of the book, everybody, goes, is the, the Mojave Incident, and you can get it on Amazon.com. So go ahead, Ron. Yeah, at first, uh, at first I was kind of um, – stunned at the story you know I just heard bits and pieces of it and it wasn't a, a full-blown story until uh, they got to know me better and trust me more and then we made tapes and uh, and it, it, it turned out to be I've written I, I guess 13 books or so this is by far the most most astounding story I've ever heard or have ever written about Wow, well, that says a lot. And, I, you know, I really need to tell everybody what happened before we went live tonight, too. Because mm-hmm. you and I were talking. You called in early, as I requested, so you could check your sound quality. And as we were talking, all of a sudden, what happened was what sounded like alien voices having a conversation came right over my phone, and I couldn't hear you, Ron, anymore. All I could hear were these strange, strange sounds that sounded like some type of alien language. Now, that really was something. So I And we were disconnected, from, yeah. Yeah, from the radio board and called back in and heard it again. So, again, when you called back in, finally it stopped. So I was glad it stopped. It would have been really hard to do the show. <laughs> uh, that <laughs> alien you would have sound to was overriding everything. Yeah, yeah, I guess they have something yeah. to say tonight. So if we get kicked off the board again, everybody, we're, we're going to get back on. So just hang with us. But clearly there is some very strange energy that persists around this case. So you might as well delve into it. Please, get, let's get started and, and hear what happened to Elise and Tom Gifford. Yeah, I, I think um, I'll, I'll start just by saying uh, that, that – uh, Elise, you know, was a young mother, and she had a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a four-year-old. And uh, I guess that's a handful. And she just wanted to get away. You know, she wanted to get away from the house. And so her parents um, babysat while 
uh, she and Tom were going to go to the Mid Hills camping grounds. And there they were going to go to a place, I think it was called Sneaky Pete's, where they do some dancing and have a couple of drinks and, uh, and enjoy themselves, have a, have a steak and a nice dinner for a couple of days to get out of the house. In the meantime, Tom was a hunter. And uh, a year back, he had missed a mule deer in the Mojave Desert where he was hunting with his brother and his father. So he missed it, the shot. He's a very competitive fellow. And uh, his father and brother gave him a relentless hard time about it. So he wanted to go and get a mule deer, and she wanted to go and have a good time and get away from the kids. So they decided to do both. So uh, they went to Sneaky Pete. They had their, their steak. And then they were going to go to Mid Hills Camping Grounds where they would, uh, in their camper, spend the night. But it was sold out, which is already very unusual. So what they had to do was go to where he would hunt, which was in a very obscure section of the Mojave Desert near Woods Mountain and Tabletop Mountain. So from there, um, they were doing what people do. They had cooked dinner. They were roasting marshmallows and feeding uh, desert rats. There's a lot of life in the desert, particularly at night. It, it sort of comes alive, and so there's a lot of noise. So they're feeding these these uh, these squirrel-like creatures, and um, all of a sudden, Tom, who had had a, an experience, a UFO experience that he rarely talked about when he was eight years old, sees behind Woods Mountain a UFO about 30 feet in diameter. He looks at it, and it gets a, a chill down his spine because it brings back that flash of a memory from when he was eight. In the meantime, it goes right back behind the mountain, almost like a peekaboo situation. Huh. Now, Elise is already nervous because they're in the middle of the desert alone. Uh, at that time, there were rumors that motorcycle gangs were there. Uh, there were drugs that were being transported through the desert, etc. And so she was really terrified that they'd encounter, you know, some bad guys, whether the motorcycle gangs yeah. or whatever and uh, find themselves in deep trouble. So she was already nervous. So Tom decided to not tell her and just keep it to himself. So a little later, they're gazing, they're stargazing, and uh, Tom, who, you know, was, was pretty expert at the constellations, Orion, etc., is pointing out the various constellations. And uh, so Elise says, well, what, what is that star there? So first he said, I guess... It's a double star. So she goes, well, it must be a triple star because it's getting really bright and larger. So he really sort of connects the, 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 the sighting that he had just moments before with what's going on now. And, you know, it, it sends a chill down his spine. So he, mm-hmm. um, he and uh, Elise, you know, just keep watching. But what they see is even more startling because this one object turns to nine and they go over a tabletop mountain in the configuration of a giant M. And so huh. they're stunned and, uh, and very nervous. So Tom tries to explain it. Well, maybe they're weather balloons. Maybe it's a military exercise because Nella's air force base was not so far away, but uh, even he doesn't believe it. They watch, 
and uh, nine orbs turn into hundreds of orbs. And they start falling to the ground. And they start rushing Gosh. toward them. And what they Oof. see are these red-eyed creatures. So they describe them as kind of like almost dwarves. You know, they have malevolent, fierce red eyes and, um, and uh, small bodies, like sort of um, maybe monkeys or something along those lines. They describe them maybe as like dwarves but uh, gremlins, of, uh, something of that nature. And they come running. So what they don't, they don't see the, the bodies of these things. All they see are pairs of red eyes charging. Oh, my them. God. Wow. So, yeah, I know. So, so Tom is a hunter, so he has a couple of guns. He has, uh, you know, a browning rifle. He has a 12-gauge shotgun. And he goes to get his gun. Now, of course, this is crazy because there's hundreds of these things charging at, at them. But then Elise gets this telepathic message that's very, very strong. Get in the camper. Go to the camper. So she tells Tom, and now Tom is getting the same message. Go into the camper. Go into the back of the camper or we'll kill you. So oh. they do. Almost robotically, they go into the back of the camper. And uh, they look out the window. So it, it's one of these campers that, you know, has windows on the side and on the back. Yes. yes. And, uh, and the tailgate is open, and uh, they can see out the window. So what they see are these gremlin beings, these dwarfish, like their faces are sort of leathery and black, and they're almost like monkeys, but in ferocious, boundless energy. And they're running all over the camper and in the trees and, and things like that. And they're terrified. Oh, then, yeah. as he decides that they're not going to stay in the camper any longer, two sort of, if you think about a fire plug, uh, you know, two sort of fire plug beings, gray beings, that guard them. And they're electrified. So when they go forward, which Tom tried to do, they come forward to an equal measure and uh, jolt him with electricity. So he tries that a couple of times and realizes they're trapped. In the meantime, um, they see a UFO that he describes as the size of a football field. Now, it's very interesting that he used that term because after the Phoenix Lights, Governor uh, Symington, Fife Symington, who witnessed the UFO UFOs during the Phoenix Lights episode and, and put it on YouTube so it's there for anyone to see described an object that was the size of a football field slowly going over um, over where he was standing along with about 500 other people and so that size this enormous size is something that's uh, stunning so big that it blocked out the moon and the stars so it literally huge. capped the valley. That's, that's so, huge, yeah. So then uh, what happens, and this is a, a very interesting thing in terms of description. They, uh, they now have in front of them are beamed down. There's a light that's uh, about 100 feet in diameter, and it's beaming things up and down from the desert. And these beings appear. They call them illuminated figures because they are like light. You know, they're, they're white, like white light, 
beaming, glaring. Their faces Mm -hmm. are devoid of either lips or teeth. They have a slit for a mouth and two open holes for a nose, uh, punctuating their large, oversized head with skin so white it actually glowed. Now, there were nine of these that surround the camper, and they pull the curtains. It's just just terrifying, but, of course, that that doesn't help at all. These things are are glowing through through the the curtain, and uh, it, it does them no good. There's nine of them, and they're convinced that these were more like intelligent, scientific types. And what they proceed to do is to put them through mental gyrations, painful mental gyrations. So each of them is forced to literally be transferred into the time of what's going on. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, Elise had had a sexual assault. Bang. That's vivid in her mind, reliving it. Uh, oh, no. Uh, Tom had so been a, a, a football trauma. trauma, euphoria, fear, pain. And, uh, and uh, Elise had a very interesting, interesting take on it. She said that, uh, you know, it's our reactions they want. They don't have emotions like we do. They're putting them through this to try and understand how we think and how humans feel. And so all of these emotions, they're going through separately. And literally, with these beings around them and the other beings still on the truck and all around them, they pinch each other and just to, to check to see if they've gone insane. Do you describe what you see right now, point by point, feature by feature. They do that back and forth. And um, they feel like they're going to have heart attacks. They're, you know, their chest is thumping, and uh, they're having chest pain. And then a kind of uh, fog, um, like anesthesia, comes into the truck, and uh, it calms them. And so it was very clear to them that they didn't want them to die. They wanted to keep them alive so they could continue to experiment on them. And, uh, and so it goes on. In the meantime, and this is, I think, what really makes this story so, so unique. In the meantime, there's a, a, a triangular craft, not large, maybe 30 feet in diameter, that has a probe, is probing the desert basin. And uh, they, they hear like this drilling sound and smell this sulfurous uh, odor like burning rubber. And uh, they're convinced that this, searcher was searching for minerals or something and uh, that makes some sense because in that area of the desert Alumax which is a big aluminum company and metal company metal forger uh, mines a lot of their rare earth there and their minerals there and as a matter of fact some of the some of the rare earths that are used in um, laser weaponry come from that area lanthanum okay. uh, cerium mm-hmm. things like that so maybe they were mining, and that, that was definitely their impression. So uh, they, they go through these gyrations. These sort of beings are around them, again, romping around. 
the searcher is moving. The probe of light that I described is about 100 feet in diameter is beaming things up and down. And, uh, and uh, it winds up coming to them. And they're convinced they're going to be beamed up. And this is even more horrifying. But then things recede. The, the, the gremlin-type beings give one last glare back at them and start to move back out, of, out towards where they came from. The illuminated beings don't go away, but they sort of back off. And they think that maybe it's over. And they're praying. They're literally praying for their lives and the lives of their children because they think their children might be in jeopardy because these visions involve, some of them involve their kids. Oh, boy, so, uh, that's so frightening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just, just every <clears throat> button that they could push is pushed. And this is one of the final ones. They think it's over and they're, oh, they're jubilant, and then it comes rushing back again. And now uh. they, they, I think they're con- contemplating suicide or something along those lines. They, they, don't, you know, they don't think they're going to make it. They think they're going to be tortured to death, and they are being tortured. They're being mentally tortured. A couple of interesting yeah. things. Yeah. L- let me just ask you a question because you did start to say something that they made Tom remember, but I interrupted you. What, so what did they have? So they brought up the sexual assault for Elise, and, which was, mm-hmm. again, horrifying. And then what about for Tom? That's really a, a good question. I'm really glad you asked that. Uh, Tom is a hunter. And he had a vision where he was being hunted, and he's on the run from hunters. And uh, he gets wounded and shot and uh, skinned alive like a deer would ah. be skinned. Yeah. So, so yeah, in that case, uh, they actually created uh, some events for him to experience in his mind that would be awful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think that... Um, that Elise has her finger on the pulse of something when she talks about experiments to, to uncover emotions. You know, if you think about it, maybe, I don't know, an insect or something, God knows what, what uh, their existence is like, but probably they don't have emotions. But if they wanted to find out about us, how would they do it? And if they only had a short period of time, they would do it by experiments just like, just like the ones that... Uh, that these illuminated beings did. Yeah. And, you know, would, interesting. Inter, inter, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying they would definitely want to do something like that. And they didn't seem to have much concern for them at all for Elise and Tom. They just treated them like lab rats, though, right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one of the interesting things, I, uh, I, Life magazine had a thing on strange places or mysterious places, and I had a copy of it on on my uh, coffee table. And so once I heard this story the first time and heard more and more about it, you know, during the interviews we did, I I picked it up, and uh, in it were the Mojave twins. Now, I don't know if you know about that, but these uh, are petroglyphs. Yeah, I know there are petroglyphs in that area. On caves, so they're cave drawings from five or six hundred years ago, and more uh, prominent are the Mojave twins. This is a large ground drawing that can only be recognized from up in the air. If you go to the internet, you'll see it. It's it's unmistakable in terms of its uh, 
descriptive uh, form. It's got large eyes, a big head, spindly appendages, maybe the size of a, a five or six-year-old, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. they are a dead ringer for exactly what they described as the illuminated figures. So I thought that was just oh. pretty stunning, you know? That, that is, yeah, the pieces are coming together, yes. So um, so for, from there, uh, like I said, they're, they're really feeling like the, this is, this is over. They think they're going to die. They think their kids are going to die. And uh, they're just tormented. But uh, just when they think they're on the verge of, of a heart attack or a mental breakdown, uh, this other figure comes. And uh, it was described by them as elegant, angelic, like an angel, and large. Mm. And uh, this angelic figure... Uh, is like smoke white swirling form, lucid with a lucid flowing robe, floats gracefully towards them. It's radiant. And they called it their comforter because it was gentle but powerful because the other beings reacted to it. And uh, telepathically, they heard, it's all right. I'm here now to protect you. Be at peace. It's almost over. And uh, that, that, to me, these different sort of creatures, it, it becomes almost biblical, certainly in other times. Somebody had this experience, you know, in biblical times or probably just a few hundred years ago. People would describe this as demons and uh, angels, you know. Definitely. And these, yeah. these days in a more technical age, you can certainly still look at it that way. You have a good argument for it. But, but what is so incredible to me is the, the scope of this, the scope of it. You know, it's like a curtain is pulled, and you see the inner workings of a clock or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. So um, from there, they get very sleepy. And uh, from above, uh, they see this bright light, this uh, probe come down, and... Uh, they feel the whole camper being lifted up, up from the ground in this, uh, in this um, probe. And uh, the rest, they have very little memory of, very foggy memories, which uh, came out in nightmares afterwards. They had, you know, bone-crushing nightmares, uh, both of them, mm. and fear for their, for their kids. And uh, Tom Jr., just to put it in perspective, one night uh, – is screaming and uh, they come rushing to his bedroom and he's spinning like a top in the middle of the room. So Elise rushes to him, gathers him up into her arms and, uh, you know, it's all right. Don't worry. So he goes, no, it's not all right. So he goes, there are monsters. So Tom says, hey, there are no monsters. He goes, yes, there are. They're little and they have red eyes. Oh, I know, isn't that? It's just uh, that's just quite amazing. So creepy. Well, yeah, yeah because I would creepy. imagine Elise and Tom are now concerned how these that their children are are at risk, just like they worried about when they were having their abduction experience in the desert. So mm-hmm. now they're seeing proof of this that their son is spinning around like something out of poltergeist, and and the son is telling them it this is real. These monsters are doing this. 
the yeah. ones that you guys saw in the desert. Exactly. Right. Uh, here's another experience that they had June 12, uh, 1990. The original thing happened in, in uh, October 89. So it's about 3 a.m. in the morning. It was four weeks later in the dead of early morning that the dreams recurred with an intensity unlike any of the others. In his, Tom saw himself back in the camper, trapped and screaming, while the illuminated creatures encircled him. He was screaming, but there was no sound. And then he saw a flashing image. It was of a long, narrow tunnel and lights running along the sides. But then it was gone again. And then he saw a being who was all white, the color tunnel lights. Again, he saw a flashing image, and it was of several beings like that. They were trying to restrain him. Then the vision was gone, and only the first figure remained. The being is four feet tall. He wears a white, luminous uniform with an upturned arrow on the chest. He has no facial features, no mouth or lips, only slits. He passes directly through the wall. He stands behind the headboard of their bed. He stays there, passes his three long fingers over Elise's face, over and over. Tom can only see the hand. He opens his eyes, and directly above him is the face of the white being. You're dreaming, he hears the voice say. Then he looks to Elise's face and sees the burn marks its fingers have left. Hey, wait a minute, Tom screams. This is no dream. Turns to Elise and gasps. Elise's eyes open. What? What is it? Go to the mirror. Go to the mirror. My God. What have they done? They burned my face. Not nice. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, not not nice. Let let me just go back to the the camper, because Mm -hmm. how long did this whole thing last? It lasted from evening to, what, the next morning when they were returned? The next morning. Yeah, the next morning they woke up uh, fully clothed by the 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 uh, campfire, which was out. And uh, they were, you know, vaguely, dis- you know, they were disoriented, but felt drugged, you know, as if they were drugged. They, um, they thought the world had ended. When these crafts were coming at them, the, the, the white crafts that started all this, they thought it was a Russian invasion. You know, uh, yeah. they thought when they woke up, it was the world had ended. You know, that, that was what they experienced. And, and by the way, what they experienced on the craft came out later in uh, retrogressive hip, hypnosis and uh, was, was even more, you know, amazing. But uh, so they, uh, they were, were uh, really disoriented. They turned on the radio, thought they'd be hearing news of some, you know, tremendous event, and they didn't. And that, I guess, was even more, you know, horrifying in its way. You know, did this Definitely, what happened? because what they experienced this alone. Yeah. Yeah. So they met an older couple that was having some coffee in a tent, you know, fairly close to where they were. And uh, they asked them, did you see anything or whatever? And they said, no, we went to bed early and, you know, didn't see anything. So, again, it's, it's just a feeling that really haunts them. Uh, it probably still does. This feeling of... Um, what happened? Why did this happen to me? You know, yes. who do you share these right. stories with? 
who do you dare talk to about it way back then? And and it's you know exactly those questions and why them? Why were they chosen? Clearly, there was another couple nearby that yep. these aliens could have uh, could have come to, but they didn't. They just picked this couple for some reason. Oh, I have a couple quotes that I thought you might enjoy. Uh, the book starts out with a part one, which is invasion, and this is from uh, Tom Gifford. When we first saw them dropping from the sky, we thought it was some kind of military maneuver, maybe for Operation Desert Storm, but it was too massive even for that. I mean, there were thousands of them falling, then rushing towards us. So I kicked out the campfire, grabbed my gun, and ran into the back of the camper with the leaves. Then we sat there Indian-style, waiting until they came, hundreds of them, hundreds of pairs of tiny red eyes glowing in the dark around us. Then uh, the next section is called Mind Share, and this deals with the experiments that were being done on them. This is from Elise. They wanted everything we had, everything, our minds, our bodies, even our souls. It was like they drew it out of us with a syringe, every molecule, and it was painful, and I thought we were going to die or had already died and were being tortured in hell. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, I, I just, I mean, that is, is, these two people have been through the fire, really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think what, what maybe gets worse for people, they don't want to share it. Because they, they shared it with their uh, – Tom shared it with his father-in-law. And, you know, well, I'm sure you saw something. And to them, you have to understand, yeah. this is like a life-changing event. This is like, you know, it's – it's something so huge. It, it's sort of like, uh, you know, Neil Armstrong or whatever landing on the moon. What do you do next? What do you do after you've landed on the moon? You know, it's, <laughs> it's like that for them. He can't work. He can't sleep. She can't work. She can't sleep. This is just an obsession that's in their mind like a steel hook and it won't let go. And uh, nothing seems to matter anymore. Again, it, 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 when you encounter something so momentous, I think it just dwarfs. You say, well, what am I going to do, drink uh, Nescafe or what coffee today? You know, it just seems these are just things that just don't seem to matter anymore. His job didn't seem to matter anymore. So well, afterwards, so- uh, watchers, this is the third sort of phase. Do you know what it's like to want to protect your family every day and every night and know that you can't even protect yourself? Because whether you see them or not, you can feel them, and it's like they live inside you, inside your brain, and they do whatever they want, when they want, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Tom Gifford. That's frustrating. Yes, I mean, that's... But yet, he did have that experience of seeing a UFO when he was eight, and we don't know if he had missing yes. time at that point or not. And, and a lot of what abductees have told us is this is an intergenerational experience that if it happened to them, that it happened in the past to other relatives, fathers, Mm -hmm. mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, whatever, that it comes down a specific lineage, but at least did not have any previous experiences, right? Um, No, no, absolutely not. No. So just Tom, but why, why did they think they were picked for this horrible adventure? Well, you know, um, I, I remember reading something about Elvis Presley. And Elvis Presley, of course, in the 50s and early 60s was like, you know, he was it. 
And here's this guy who was a truck driver. You know, if you ever saw the house he grew up in, you know, it's like a, a, literally a shack. And he always wondered the same thing. Why me? What, why am I mm-hmm. this? How did I become this? I think it's very similar. Spend your life trying to figure out why it was you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I have another question you know, about the earlier part sure. of the story, too. Let me go back to that sure. before I forget. You talked mm-hmm. about the ships forming an M in the sky. What do you think the significance is of that letter, M? I don't know, and I don't know that um, that it was an M the way you or I would think of it, meaning it, it's the configuration of an M, because, and mm-hmm. that might have just been a formation, just a formation. I don't know that it was the letter M signifying anything along those lines. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But that's the way they described okay. it, a, a large M configuration over the mountains. Yeah, because I seem to remember something about the letter M and extraterrestrials. I don't remember it offhand, but I know there's some connection and oh, really? what that letter actually means. One of the things that I thought was interesting, you know, the, the hypnotic sessions were incredible. So we had uh, a guy named Dr. Vitone, who was director of uh, the Washington, here I have the quote here actually, director of uh, the National Center for Psychiatric Disorders in Washington, D.C. So we had him examine them, first of all, for neuroses or, you know, or the prone to fantasy or, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, and uh, right. they pass with flying colors. These are really, you know, concrete people, not prone to fantasy, et cetera. And he describes it as highly unusual, traumatizing events um, beyond the realm of normal human experience. Uh, Dr. William Annixter, also uh, uh, a psychiatrist and medical doctor from Mountain Psychiatric Center in Asheville, North Carolina, the most compelling case of its kind I've ever encountered. And so we put them through a battery of of tests in in terms of lie detector tests, in terms of just because I wanted to make sure that we covered every base. You know, we, we crossed every T and dotted every I so that, so that the credibility of the story would, would stay intact and uh, it, it, um, it could be verified, even if it's indirect, you know, by uh, mm-hmm. scientific method. During the, uh, during the astonishing uh, retrogressive uh, sessions, um, the doctor asked what the meaning, what, what these beings want. So I'll read uh, sort of a transcript and I'll read from it. Elise, yeah, do you have any idea what these? Elise, do you have any idea what these beings want or why they're here? So then I say it was macabre watching as Elise sprang up in her chair, suddenly animated and alert. Her voice, rather than soft and emotional, took on a new cadence, which was clipped and direct, very much unlike her. Quote: They want to make contact with the population. Tom and I are specimens, imperfect like the human race. When we're ready to communicate with them face-to-face, then possibly the world will be too. Her actions then, she starts edging forward, and it's almost like it's a different voice, very mechanical. They have to study our reaction so they know how to approach us. They don't have emotions like ours, so they need us to teach them. They need to understand humans. Do you have a sense as to who they are or where they come from? There are five galaxies. 
Theirs is the next closest. In order for all five galaxies to work together one day, they have to start, and they're starting with us, so we'll be united galaxies. What else do you know? I know where the universe ends. Now, she says the next thing. She rattles this off, and it's a very complex sort of concept. But let me read it. it says, I know where the universe ends. Yeah. The doctor says, is that something you can put into words? Our universe ends where theirs begins. Our universe ends when all its matter stops mattering to us and starts mattering to them. Wow. You know, I have a doctorate in English, and that is such a, a, a complex and interesting construction. Yeah, it's very profound. Yeah, very profound. And uh, she goes on, you know, when are they coming? And uh, she's very direct. And again, almost like a different person. So the doctor says, do you have any idea? You know, there'll be this encounter or whatever, this, this coming together. Do you have any idea when this, this will happen? Will it happen in my lifetime? She shoots back, how long will you live? <laughs> huh? then, then he says, will it happen in my, my son's lifetime? He says, it'll happen in our children's lifetime. So very specific, mm-hmm. and this is, what again, what I think is, is incredibly unique about this is that there's nothing vague or, you know, or foggy about it. Everything is, is really spelled out uh, by them. Yeah, it's very and, clear. Uh, by the yeah. story, very clear. Yeah. Which is unusual. But So they did bring out a lot under hypnosis, which is good, and I'm sure they were surprised when they listened to the tapes themselves about what went on. But when they were returned, so they were returned right into the same place they left from? I know a lot of people don't get returned to the same place. No, they they were returned to the same place. Uh, The campfire was out, so they knew time, and it was daylight, so they knew that uh, time had gone by. And as I said, they they apparently either were dropped there, but they were asleep and woke up at exactly the same time. And... uh, and knew that uh, that a certain amount of time, you know, had gone by. So you had asked how long this experience lasted. Uh, I think we're talking about 12 hours or so. Gosh. Which again makes oh. it really sustained, you know, really yes. sustained. And so, so I was pretty skeptical. Like I said, I was not a proponent of anything one way or the other. Like most people my age, I enjoyed the Twilight Zone when I was a kid and that sort of thing. But, you know, mm-hmm. that's about it, more... You know, I, I really wasn't uh, into UFOs or anything like that. But um, uh, I, I just found this a game changer, you know, from my standpoint as well. And um, and I certainly it changed their lives. You know, they uh, afterwards uh, became uh, pretty religious, and they told this story to uh, a bishop in the Mormon Church, and uh, they became pretty devout in terms of that. And um, are leading a, a normal life uh, these days in uh, in Utah in the Salt Lake City area. Now, with their children, at least one of their children, uh, seeing these these creatures, did they have any more events that took place when they returned like that, so that they had to be continuously concerned that their children were going to encounter these little gremlin thingies? Well, you know, one of the things I didn't mention, and again, this is what makes it such a full-blown story, 
Um, one of the illuminated figures, while jeez, uh, while while uh, Elise was in the camper, flicked a finger, a light, a uh, like a cigarette butt, the size of a you know of a lit cigarette butt, the, that uh, mm-hmm. glowing thing, went into her abdomen, and she was convinced oh. that uh, she was impregnated, and as a matter of fact, she wound up having a baby shortly thereafter, and uh, they were you know more than a little concerned about, about all that. So, uh, so that happened uh, also. And, and so this lingering, I don't know what to call anxiety, you know, just hangs, you know, hung over them for a considerable time, probably still to this day. Yeah, I would think so. <clears throat> Given, you know, the length of time that, that this took, which was significant, and yes. that they did go and have all this, uh, aggressive therapy to find out what it exactly happened. So that they were putting puzzle pieces together, and then both of them seemed to have a good understanding of what these aliens were up to and who they were. So it, yes. it makes for a very big picture of this whole event and yeah. where humans fit in and where extraterrestrials fit in and why. There's a lot of information yeah. here, really good information. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, um, Tom would have these nightmares of struggling with these beings. I read a section from that where the white beings and struggling with them, and uh, yes. they were separated. So, so, so uh, Tom was in, brought to one area, and she was brought to another. Both of them had a similar experience. They were put on a, a table, an operating-type table, uh, pinioned, you know, bound hand and foot. And, uh, yeah. you know... Uh, these examinations were so intimate and so uh, intrusive that uh, both of them just were crying like babies, just sobbing from mm-hmm. fear and uh, helplessness. Yes, that is quite evident that they were helpless from the moment they saw that light and those beings coming towards them. They didn't. They never really recovered any kind of empowerment after that. It was just they were the test subjects, period. At, yes, at their exactly. you know, direction. I mean, whatever these things wanted to do with them, they could do. And they knew that. They understood that. Yeah, and you know what I find, again, this is, maybe maybe you have encountered a story uh, similar, but what fascinated me, I mean, you could certainly look at these uh, gremlin figures as demonic or whatever, and I don't know what you'd say about the illuminated figures, scientists or whatever, but this angelic presence that they said, you know, was, was unmistakably feminine, swirling robes, angelic, like, you know, truly like if, if the images of, of an angel that, uh, that one would see in, uh, in paintings, uh, yeah. just like that. And uh, this tremendous gentleness and tremendous power at the same time. Uh, have you encountered any stories like that or accounts like that? You know, the one that comes to mind is the one about the Russian astronauts. I'm sure you've heard this one where they claim that they saw three large angels outside their ship. And it's, uh, it's been talked about quite a bit, this particular event. And then there were other astronauts that came after them that had the same experience with these three I, I, I'm not familiar with that. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good one. And, it's, you know, again, you're talking about credible people 
these are astronauts, for God's sake. You know, they're highly educated and their training is extreme. And here are two sets of crews that saw the same thing. And these these angels that they saw, they said were enormous, just enormous. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the one thing that stands out in my memory about angelic encounters that have to do with ETs. Yeah, you know, um, I read to you about uh, one one of the things, too, that came out in the interview. I won't won't read it, but they asked, like, um, who are they, et cetera, and they answer, we're made in the image of God, but they're not. Isn't that a strange answer? That's, that's very what, that's interesting. What, uh, Elise that's says. Yeah, very interesting. Mm-hmm. There's a quote from Norman Mailer that I, I put at the very end of the book. And, you know, you say, people say, well, what do you make of this? It's very difficult to say, what do I make of it? I make of it that, that we understand very little about human existence. That's the first thing I would say. Um, yeah. But, you know, I can easily see how somebody from one set of eyes could look at this as a religious type experience, good versus evil, demonic versus angels. And then on the other side, just various kinds of beings that have been misinterpreted over the years and given a religious significance. But Norman Mailer has an interesting uh, quote that I took. He was on a, uh, a talk show and he said, the devil might be a presence from another universe we might be fighting an implacable enemy out there and the devil might be the agent of the implacable enemy with God as the tired general fighting that war with his own agents of hope. Which is a very almost normal is the least traditional guy you could ever find. But in an odd way, that's a very traditional view of the universe. Yes, it is. And again, here we are with these questions that need to be answered about who are they, who are we, you know, why are we intersecting in these ways that are kind of unpleasant. What's really great, though, about Elise and Tom is that they came out of this just fine. I mean, obviously, they dealt with issues with reintegrating with their, mm-hmm. um, with his employment and just with being able to sleep. Because it was such a disturbing, out-of-the-box thing that happened. It's so hard to integrate any of it. But they're still, they somehow are able to maintain normalcy, live, go on and live their lives, raise their children, you know, all of those those wonderful kinds of things that people come here on Earth Mm -hmm. to do. So that's a great tribute to them that they had that kind of, of courage and they were grounded enough to yeah. you to know, uh, it's an excellent point. And the fourth section of the book is called Them, and, and it deals mm-hmm. with just what you were discussing. So, I guess the question was, uh, Are these evil? So, this is Elise. Elise says, Evil, I don't know if they're totally evil. It's like in life, there are some who are evil, but then there are others who are special, totally good. And it's those I try to think about, especially when things get difficult, because I believe it's those that will bring us peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Are they evil? And I like her answer because it's also about this. If they don't have the capacity to 
understand emotion, to have emotion, I would think it would be difficult to find any compassion also. So these things Mm -hmm. are without emotion, without compassion. And so these two test subjects are, are worse than ants to them. They don't, there's no connection emotionally. So they can do yeah. whatever they want to them. They can terrify them. They can terrorize them. Um, they can do whatever they want because, again, compassion is lacking, it sounds yeah. like. In those I'm not talking about the angelic one, though, or, mm-hmm. or the watcher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thingies. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, in, in a way, don't we do those very same things to dogs and well, chimpanzees, Well, yeah, we have psychopaths and sociopaths and people who don't mm-hmm. emote but use, yeah. use their uh, wiles to control other people. So on a, a low level, there, is a, there are examples of that, sure. Yeah. But what I was thinking of was scientists who experiment on dogs and chimpanzees. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that they have a lot of compassion. They do what they do to get their experiment done to, you know, for whatever reasons. But right. I, I suspect it's a little like that. I think that's true also. Um, I know that there was an experiment done a while ago, and you probably know about this one, where they called students in and they said, you know, you have to push this button and it, it might give this mm-hmm. person, I forget if it was going to kill him or give him a heart attack or something, but you mm-hmm. have to do it. Mm-hmm. You, have to, mm-hmm. you have to complete the mm-hmm. experiment. And it was interesting to watch how easy it was to convince those <laughs> students to press that button. Yeah, I think and it was called scary. the Stanford experiment. Yeah, it was at yeah, I University. Yeah. I, re- I do remember reading. Yeah. You know what, yeah. what I, I thought was interesting? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're right I'm about sorry, this. That, you know, how different are we than than the gremlins? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and again, plays into this. So you find yourself sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, filling in the blanks. I forget the name of the game show where there's like three letters and a ten letter word and you have to fill in the blanks to oh, yeah. come up with I the, the word. Tom yeah. Sajak, I know, is the, the host. Anyway, it's a little like that. I think that's what we're trying to do. I mean, we have mm-hmm. bits and pieces of information and you try to put the mosaic together. But one of the pieces that I thought had, had a lot of bearing on, uh, on this story and, and others is, um, is, is uh, this fellow Dr. Francis Crick and Dr. Francis Crick uh, was a Nobel Prize winner in science, and he was the discoverer of DNA's double helix structure. And for that, he won the Nobel Prize in science. So this is no lightweight. So this is what he says about evolution and, uh, and how humanity was created. He doesn't believe in evolution. He says the possibility of Darwin's evolutionary theory being correct, uh, something so complex as the human brain deriving from microbiological life is in a swamp is no more likely than having a tornado plow through a junkyard and uh, afterward finding a fully assembled 747 jet aircraft that takes <laughs> off and flies to Europe. That's so true. But that's very interesting. So he, he, he doesn't believe that, that the time involved you know, and, and the course of evolution could possibly account for DNA, et cetera. So this is his theory. And I'm reading. Crick argues that humans hadn't existed long enough for something as complex as the human brain to develop, 
through Darwin's evolutionary process. Rather, Crick put forward the mind-bending possibility that DNA was extraterrestrial in nature and had been sent from another universe until it arrived on Earth to become the genesis of the human species. With human DNA, he went on, uh, could lie uh, psychokinetic abilities associated with the genetic memories of extraterrestrial races. So in other words, he's, he's saying that like we go to Mars, China goes to Mars, Russia goes to the moon, whatever, you know, we are exploring space, that an alien civilization put out DNA, probably their DNA, in asteroids and uh, meteors, etc. that going through, I guess it's Van Halen's belt, uh, the radiation activated that, and that's how the human species was developed, directly from DNA that was sent here. And he calls it directed paraspermia. But if yeah. that's true, and by the way, I'd buy it, okay, just so you know. I'd buy yeah. it. I think it's yeah. a more credible, more credible theory than evolution. But uh, if that's true, these aliens are our parents. And, Definitely and, are. You know, and yeah. certainly if you look at any of our history, it, it makes tremendous sense that they are our ancestors. Sure. So, I mean, if you look at it that way, um, I, I suspect there are many different kinds of alien beings. I suspect that the Earth has been visited, you know, for, for centuries, if not longer, not by just one, but by a variety of space explorers, yeah. sort of just like us, but more advanced. Yeah. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't find that, I don't find that uh, hard to imagine at all. I find it, you know, as plain as you know, as plain as can be. Well, it makes sense Patricia. to me, and I know it makes sense to most of, if not all, of our audience here. I mean, again, it's a lot of this is just critical thinking, being able to understand what's actually going on and not just be attached to a certain belief, but to really be interested in the truth. And there's, yeah. there's a lot to be said for what this, you know, what you've just put forth. I think it makes a lot of sense. It fills in a lot of blanks. Um, you know, this brings to mind President Carter, because I'm sure you're aware that not all presidents are briefed on the UFO situation and the extraterrestrial mm-hmm. situation. But mm-hmm. apparently and President mm-hmm. Carter was brief, and he went into his office and stopped. And Larry Holcomb reported this in his book, uh, Presidents and UFOs. And I asked Larry, I said, what do you think it was that made President Carter burst into tears like that? Now, remember, Carter was very religious. My guess is, that that's part of what they told him, that uh, it's not, you know, we've made God the creator. What if it wasn't? What if it was ETs? And I think that is mm-hmm. at least the kind of thing that would make President Carter cry his eyes out because it's in mm-hmm. direct conflict with his religious beliefs. So just a and, thought. And, you know, he had a, yeah. and, you know, he had, he had a sighting, you know, that October yes. uh, 69, he was at a Lions Club meeting and, uh, went out, and again, with maybe a, a half dozen, dozen other people that were attending the Lions Club, they looked in the sky, and he described it as lar- a large, eerie object glowing in the uh, evening sky, bigger than the moon. 
so again, you get mm. this size thing and this mothership kind of thing, and then of course these things take off, you know, at 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 uh, you know hypersonic speed, and uh, it, it it's it's astonishing. And so uh, Carter was astonished and actually filled out a UFO report for the Department yes, of Navy. Yes, he did. Yeah. Now, since we're talking about our government, what are your thoughts on this report that the Pentagon put out? What are your thoughts on this and why they're still not willing to tell us the truth? Well, actually, you know, I think they made an incredible uh, revelation. They just didn't put bells and whistles on it. But as you know, I'll just go over a couple of things. You know that the videos released in 2020, 2021, everybody knows about the Nimitz incident. The Navy pilots, for two weeks, two weeks, they were observing UFOs at Mm 80,000 feet, 30,000 feet. You know, these were uh, maybe 40 feet in diameter, submerged into a a roiling water uh, and and then uh, disappear. Uh, that was uh, the Nimitz, but then the U.S. Theodore Roosevelt uh, was cruising from Virginia to Florida. Again, they saw objects uh, spotted by five different pilots, uh, hypersonic speed, sudden stops, sharp turns, um, you know, just in- incredible. Very recently, there were about 14 uh, UFOs caught on radar around one of our military installations. And uh, in July 2019, there was a video taken by Navy personnel uh, where uh, a fleet of UFOs entered U.S. airspace. So this is really quite something. And actually, one of them uh, flew, they say, 700 feet from the USS Roosevelt. So it's impossible almost to deny when you have presidents, Reagan, I, I didn't tell you about that, if you probably know, but great story about uh, Ronald Reagan and UFOs, but um, that Lucille Ball put in her autobiography, and Steve Allen, maybe you remember him from the old, old night show, he's one of the pioneers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steve Allen, in his autobiography, mentioned the story, but I won't go there at this moment, but point being, these are are Navy pilots. When a Navy pilot in in an F-15, you know, flying our, our most advanced crafts looks at this and say, I can't, I've never seen anything like it, you know, and then describes the, the speeds, describes the, uh, the maneuverability, et cetera. I mean, these are not just you and me. I mean, th- this is what they do. You know, they're trained to, to fly. They're trained to know what weapons systems uh, are about, uh, including uh, China and Russia's. And, you know, they describe these things it says accelerated like nothing I've ever seen. I have no idea what I saw. No wings, no engines or propulsion uh, plumes. So when when these things happen in the past, they first of all they were buried, so you wouldn't hear about Navy pilots. You wouldn't hear about no, that no. Uh, until mm-hmm. very recently. You wouldn't hear from scientists, etc. You would hear maybe from no offense to truck drivers, but a, you know a long distance hauler. In Iowa, says you know, I saw a UFO or I had this UFO, and people say, well, it's a nice story, etc. But you know, he'd been driving a long time. Maybe he had something to drink. Maybe he did drugs. Maybe who knows? But, but not so credible. But when you have the governor of Arizona describing this in detail, when you have Navy pilots, etc., 
this is all out to the point where how can you say it doesn't exist? I mean, <laughs> talk, talk about lack of faith really in the government. Can. There's enough of that already. Yeah. <laughs> but imagine if after all of this they said it doesn't exist. You have maybe pilots interviewed on 60 Minutes. So the big step that I think is amazing is that um, I think we're being, as a population, acclimated. I think we're being acclimated. I think slowly but surely since the 40s and 50s, things are getting closer and closer. It starts with somebody seeing a disc. starts with maybe seeing other discs. And people in other countries start seeing this. Now they have photos of them. Then they have videos of them. Then they talk about alien abductions, and you have millions of people around the world that have you know, ex- true experiences about abduction. At, at some point in time, people, even now, I think 50% or so of the population believe the Earth has been visited by you know, uh, an oh, alien yeah. presence. It's actually higher than that. It's, 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 it's over 60% if, if, you took, if you took that poll 30 years ago, it would be much lower. If you took it mm-hmm. 50 years ago, people would say the people that believed that were crazy. But now the government comes out and says it's not, if they're to be believed, it's the Pentagon. They say this is not our aircraft. This uh, is not experimental aircraft that we're working on. It's not the Soviet, the, uh, the, the Russians. It's not the Chinese. So if you eliminate those three factors, What's left? And they did that. <laughs> so yeah. they eliminated those three factors, which are really the only explanations you could have that I can think of. And, mm-hmm. and they left it. We don't know what they are. <laughs> I, I don't think the government would ever, ever have admitted that 10 years ago. Uh, no, and there's got to be a reason why they're doing it now. So it's always got to be to their advantage. They don't, don't do anything to our advantage. So let's face yeah. that fact, but it's it's very important to, I think, know what you know. I mean, you look up in the sky, a lot of people have seen things like uh, the lady that I, I talked about this evening before we started the actual show. I mean, people are seeing things, and everybody has a cell phone with a camera. They can't suppress exactly. it anymore. That's different, too. They can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you yeah, can take absolutely. a video and send it around the world in a flash of a, of a, a, a wink of an eye. It's just yeah. out there. They can't stop it. So, But they want to own it, and they want to control it. And what concerned me, though, Ron, was that when I saw mm-hmm. the interview with the pilot, and the woman pilot was talking about sure. how terrified she was. I was like, mm-hmm. damn it, I really hope you people aren't going to use this to scare us because these these ships have been in our skies for thousands of years, and, and you're afraid? Well, don't, don't think you're going to pass that on to us, because we're not buying what huh. you're selling. And so that's isn't one that, of the concerns Isn't that an I, interesting idea? Yeah, you know, and I, I don't I, like I it. Somebody... I don't like the way they've used that. Mm-hmm. So do you think, so the other possibility that, that, that um, I didn't mention is that like the stealth bomber or whatever, we have hypersonic planes, or what craft, let's call them, hypersonic our- craft mm-hmm. that, are, that are a generation ahead of the Chinese, a generation ahead of the Russians, a generation ahead of everybody, and we're just showing a card. 
maybe we're just showing a card to them. I don't think that's the case, but that would be another argument. I think it's a possibility that, I mean, I know we definitely have our own crafts. There's no question Mm -hmm. in, in my mind that we have those, and they're now ours, but they're also theirs. And the mm-hmm. ones that are theirs are the ones that no human could survive in the, the types of maneuvers that they do, knowing yes. what little we know um, about yeah. how they're doing this. So there's, there's I, a lot to be said about, you know, how are these things being piloted? How do, they, how do they survive if they are live beings on that craft? Or maybe they're not. It's, but it's yeah, the maybe thing is, not. the government knows a lot more than what they're willing to say. And, no question. And, and again, you've seen it, I've seen it, and, and we all know that people are sick and tired of being lied to. They don't trust the government anymore. Uh, they don't trust most of our institutions anymore, with good reason. So good reason. it's an interesting time to see uh, what's going on and why they're talking about it now, why they're releasing what they're releasing now. There's always their own agenda. Yeah. Do you know uh, Merle Haggard, the country singer? Yeah. Before he died, and this was a very red, white, and blue kind of guy. You know, he wrote songs that were very patriotic and all. So they said, you know, you have cancer, you're very ill. You know, what's your impression of the United States now, these days? He said, I'm tired of being manipulated. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good answer. I mean, I think that sums it up. I think that sums it up. And so, yeah, there's a great deal of skepticism when the Pentagon comes out all of a sudden, really suddenly, right, and says all these things. Yeah. And Navy pilots, but I have seen the Navy pilots interviewed, and I don't believe they're lying. I, I don't think they're lying. No, I don't think they're lying at all, but I, I don't, I, I am concerned. And I've also heard this from other hosts and, and other paranormal experts mm-hmm. that people are concerned mm-hmm. that this government is going to try to use extraterrestrials to scare us into believing we need their protection and thus we need to get under one world government. That is one of the theories that has been put forth. And Werner von Braun, he predicted that the Mm -hmm. government would use that against us. So that's why critical thinking and deductive reasoning, we need to really look at all of this very carefully and not yeah. give anything blindly over to, to our government because you can bet they're going to take us down the wrong road. <laughs> Just my opinion. Yeah. But I have heard this no, from be the first a number time of people that right? made me very concerned. No, I, I hadn't yeah. heard that, but it makes, it makes all kinds of sense. But I'll give you an alternate, and the alternate would be that, again, this is just so out there. And by the way, that they knew about this all along. And they mm-hmm. didn't want to spring this on the public until there was some 20 years or 30 years of acclamation. And uh, that's what, that's what uh, Elise Gifford says, by the way, in her hypnotic session, that, you know, they, they've been here forever. Yeah. And that they're acclimating right. us. They're desensitizing us. And if you think this is, this is really something. So I think the most stunning thing I've ever heard in my life is these Navy pilots and, uh, and people from the military. But for example, you've got the uh, former John Radcliffe, the former director of national intelligence, talking about, you know, maybe they're from a different time or a different place than Earth. You know, I mean, on, on you know, major newscasts. I, I think that, um, that there's going to be 
a meeting civilization. And I think Mm -hmm. we're ready for it now. And and you can tell because when somebody like John Radcliffe, the former national director of, uh, of security, says on a nationwide program, we don't know what these things are. They do maneuvers that we can't do. Their technology is beyond ours, et cetera. That, you know, that's unheard of. And I think it, it, it's leading to uh, a reconciliation where, where there's a meeting of civilizations. And when she says it'll happen in you know, how long will you live, if, you know, if not you, it will happen in your children's lifetime. I think so. I think we're getting very near to a point mm-hmm. where this has escalated slowly but surely, again, from somebody seeing some flying discs in the Himalayas to uh, Betty and Barney Hill to uh-huh. to to it's a, sl- a slow steady um march towards uh, well, I agree I think that some- our consciousness has been raised significantly and I think there's been a lot of good media on television like Ancient Aliens and uh when that was running it was kind of an interesting new take mm-hmm. on on the old project blue book but there's been a lot of mm-hmm. media that has led us to feel comfortable to some degree about extraterrestrials. But there's always the question, are they good? Are they bad? I mean, certainly it's interesting with Elise and Tom, they kind of experienced both. They had the the kinds that mm-hmm. were scary and, and they had the kinds that were comforting. So they ran the gamut. Mm-hmm. And you described yeah. three different types, right? Were there more? Uh, actually, if you look at the, in the sort of guarding monitors, uh, if you wanted to call those a, a sort of a, a creature, that that would be four. But four I think that okay. he, they descri- yeah yeah I think they des- described basically three in detail that were of interest. Mhm. And also, yeah. were yeah. they ever under surveillance from the government because of their abduction? Well, you know, uh, if, if they were, you probably wouldn't know it. You know, they probably wouldn't know it. Yeah, so not, well, they not might. to my knowledge, and probably not to theirs. I mean, if you say, are the phones tapped and things like that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't know. Because these days with surveillance techniques the way they are, to your point, I mean, if Hitler had the technology that we have today, we'd all be speaking German. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I mean, yeah. some people have experienced black helicopters over their houses and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, some events that would give you pause that, of course, if your phone's tapped, how would you know? And, again, with the technology being so sophisticated, you wouldn't know at this point. But back mm-hmm. then, they might have known. I don't know. It's just another question I have because a lot of UFO yeah. abductees are under surveillance to this day by our very own mm-hmm. government. So I just wonder yeah. if if they knew about that going on. Well, I can tell you that, that they've, they've had the feeling forever, probably to this day, that they're being watched. They mm-hmm. describe that all the time, that they're being watched. Um, and okay. coming back from there, they, had a, they did have a, a, a plane that they thought was following them. So, so I don't know if that's paranoia. I, I don't know what it is. You know, maybe a sort of post uh, post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome that, that people go through after, you know, very traumatic experiences. Uh, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me because they obviously, as a matter of fact, one of, the, one of the sections of the book is called Watchers. 
They, they mm-hmm. describe that all the time, that they feel like they're being watched, uh, that somebody actually is inside them almost, you know? So wow. we had talked about we had talked about presidents. I don't know if you heard this story, but it's it's a good one. I, I made reference to it before with Reagan. Yeah. So Reagan uh-huh. in seventy four was uh, this would be the last term of his uh, governorship in California. So he uh, was on the way uh, with uh, Nancy to from Sacramento to Los Angeles. So William Holden, who some of us might remember, was a famous actor. So William Holden was having a party, and the Reagans were invited, and they were noted for being incredibly prompt. You know, it was just part of their, the, the way they conducted themselves. They were always prompt. So Lucille Ball and Steve Allen both recount in their autobiographies um, a, a very interesting story. As a matter of fact, Lucille Ball puts it in her story and says, you know, I wonder if, if Reagan – on the campaign trail for president ever mentioned that this happened, if he, if he would be president or not. So hmm. the story is that, that they stopped their car because they saw a UFO and they followed it and they followed it towards Baker Bakersfield. And, but not for a long, long time because it just took off. And um, there's a quote from Reagan that's very powerful. You know, it took off uh, with incredible speed, you know, incredible speed, almost in the blink of an eye. So they get to the party, and everybody's a little surprised that they're so late, because they're a couple hours late, which is, you know, very unlike them. So they say, what happened? So they talk about this UFO thing, and then they look at the clock and say, my God, you know, we should be maybe 15 or 20 minutes late, not a couple of hours. And so you know, now, this, this was back in, I said, 74 or so, but now you would talk about missing time. And yeah. I bet that if Ronald Reagan were retrogressed, and he had a great interest in UFOs, you know that, right? I mean, yes. he had yes. a, a famous speech where he talked uh, at the UN about yeah. if an alien invasion happened, it would unite the world. A little bit like your theory just, just now, that it would unite the world. And, you know, the various countries, Russia in particular at the time, Soviet Union, you know, and the United States would not be clashing. They'd be, they'd be on the same team. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, found, I found that interesting because you could make a case that one of our presidents actually had an alien abduction experience. That is so true. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. How about that? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. it I like it a lot. It's a, it's a, I think we're living in incredibly interesting times. And uh, uh, to my point before about desensitizing, mm-hmm. I, I was shocked because when I heard these on 60 Minutes, for example, these really competent pilots, Navy pilots who have everything to lose and absolutely nothing to gain, you know, talking in such, you know, uh, emotional terms and scientific as well, you know, terms, very specific um, it was stunning to me, and couple that with all the other UFO things that you've seen, images and videos and interviews with uh, other pilots, commercial, et cetera, you know, I, I think it's the biggest thing I've ever heard of, that the Pentagon comes out and says, there are UFOs. We don't know what they are. They're flying. They're UFOs, by definition. I, I would mention that to a friend or two, and they'd 
were so blasé they couldn't care less. It was like, so were you having ketchup on your cheeseburger or, or mustard? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's absolutely, absolutely yeah. no, you know, no interest. And I, I find this to be the biggest story maybe in the history of the world. Well, yes, I think so, too. It's just a bit disappointing that they still won't reveal what they really know. They're going to just give us little breadcrumbs here and there. And so that's a disappointment, yeah. I think, for so many people in this field that we're tired of the uh, the obfuscation, we're tired of the lies, and no, we just we don't know what they are. Well, I, you know they know what they are. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, they absolutely yeah. Well, know I, what they are. But so, sometimes people say things by not saying them, and I think yeah. that's the case here. If if they say and they do, and John Radcliffe said it. Well, there are three possibilities, and it goes over the three possibilities, and one of them is extraterrestrial. Yeah. So they eliminate right. the other two out of hand, mm-hmm. and now they don't yeah. confirm it. But in in effect, they have. Mm-hmm. Well, and then not I was to say I was enthusiastic about the report. Another, I wasn't. Well, and there's also seventy pages of, of stuff that we have we are not going to see that was mm-hmm. classified. So I can only yeah. imagine what's in that. But it's about ownership, don't you think? I mean, the government doesn't like to give away anything. They have to take from us, but they don't want to give us anything. And so why, you know, why would they want to tell us at all? Because they've got to have some ownership of this. I mean, they've got to mm-hmm. feel like they've got, to, they've got to tell everybody, look, we can still protect you, and, and we still know what's going on. And mm-hmm. we don't want you to lose faith in us and not listen to us anymore. I mean, that's really what this is mm-hmm. about and how they're now yeah. calling it UAPs instead of UFOs because UFOs have baggage. And so now we're just going to call it this. So it's a whole marketing yeah. rebranding campaign that's going on along. It is rebranding. It's a good, it's, yeah, I agree. I agree, but, you know, you but, can call, uh, you know, Ivory Soap, you know, whatever – Name you want, it's still every self. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Well, and I have great admiration for Elise and Tom, and I'm so glad that you brought this story to the page because it it is an, an amazing experience that they went through and came out mm-hmm. the other side, went on to live their lives, like I mentioned. But um, I can imagine, you know, being in their shoes and having this happen and then feeling watched all the time, not knowing where it could be yep. coming from, extraterrestrial or mm-hmm. government or both. And so, you mm-hmm. know, but they seem like really good people and solid people that would never make yep, up a story are. like this. No, no, I, that, that really, you know, I could take that off the table for you. We had them examined by, you know, psychiatrists for oh, yeah. neuroses, whether they're prone to fantasies. We had them take lie detector tests. I mean, they, I think, wanted to do all that. They, they were not reluctant. They wanted to do it because they wanted to prove it to themselves. Yes. You know, at some yes. point in time, I mean, let's say something. I've, I've heard this from a lot of people that are interviewed that have seen UFOs. They see something incredibly mind blowing, and then it's gone in a flash. And they say, "Did I really see that? Did that really yeah. happen? Do you know what I mean?" Yeah. Because oh, I do know. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. And anything that is so far out of your accepted reality. Yeah, you can try to dismiss it. A lot of people do dismiss it, and absolutely, yeah, it's, they they have no other way. Like I said, it's so hard to integrate these things to your consciousness if you don't have 
any experience with this or any understanding of it and you're just all of a sudden in the middle of it, that's a really tough go. But that's why I'm so impressed with Elise and Tom. You know, I was just thinking too, you know, there's so many skeptics and you see them on television debunking some of this. And um, it, it's, they say, well, the worst witnesses, a policeman will tell you the worst witnesses or a judge will say the worst witnesses are eyewitnesses because, you know, they, they see it differently. Their mind plays tricks on them. And this is what goes on with these Navy pilots. Well, first of all, that's really highly unlikely. But second of all, these things are tracked by radar. Yeah, so that's the how do you explain that, that? right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you yeah, know, I've always not found that, explained away. Yeah, yeah, the shoe is really on the wrong foot. At this it stage is. of the game, I think skeptics have to prove to me they don't exist. <laughs> Well, I love that, Ron. That's a great way to, to put it. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. This has been absolutely exciting and delightful Fun. and very informative. And thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Again, everybody, the name of the book, The Mojave Incident, make sure you get it. It's a great read. And, oh, my goodness, let us know what you're going to write about next so we can bring you back, Ron. Thank you so much. And we'll be back next week, everybody, with another great show. Until then. See you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. (laughs) Take care, Patricia. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural Girls.